You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Stagnation through standardization. In contrast to the story of Anurag Gupta and a Little World, one of the great dangers of the age of management, especially its focus on standardization, is that it does not foster the kind of creativity that is needed to solve the complex social, environmental and ethical problems we face. The reasons are fairly obvious. An incremental approach in which companies set their own CSR-related objectives voluntarily does not tend to create the kind of stretch targets that incubate innovation. Also, standardization is by its very nature a compliance-based approach with systems, procedures, measures and audits. As a result, those running on the standards treadmill develop a tick-box mentality rather than thinking outside the box. Here is an example of how it happens in practice, which is based on a true story. A colleague of mine works in CSR at one of the production plants of a multinational pharmaceutical company. When I interviewed him a few years ago, he was deeply disappointed by the conservative, compliance-driven approach of their international head of environmental health and safety. This is what he told me. There was quite a level of frustration for me when we had the top environment health and safety guy come out from America and visit the site. We were actually training the natural step methodology to shop floor guys, and we were quite excited that he would take this thing on, and he had the power to change the whole way the corporation thinks. Well, obviously he had a very different take on it, and the approach that seems to have been taken in the company is very much on the surface more of a legal type ISO approach. So sometimes standards themselves are perhaps unwittingly to blame. For instance, when the Global Reporting Initiative launched its G3 Sustainability Reporting Guidelines, they included application levels. According to the GRI, they are intended to communicate to the readers of your report to what extent the G3 guidelines have been utilised and to provide GRI reporters with a pathway in which they can continuously improve their reporting. There are three application levels, A, B and C. These three levels can be self-declared, third-party checked or checked by the GRI, and each with the option of recognizing external assurance by adding a plus to the rating. So far, so good. The problem is that because the levels are directly related to the number of indicators reported, the more indicators, the higher the rating, many companies have slavishly reported on many irrelevant or marginal issues. Hence GRI's request that they use the levels with due regard to the materiality principle has not always been followed. In such compliance-driven environments, incentivized by CSR standardization, two things typically happen. Most managers will go strictly by the book, whatever the letter of the standard dictates, without experimentation, without pushing the envelope, and hence with less likelihood of making mistakes. After all, measuring, auditing and reporting are widely perceived as a strategy to eliminate mistakes. The other thing that happens is that managers become creative about how to trick the system. If the standard calls for continuous improvement on pollution reduction and pollution has gone up, 
then why not report against unit of production, so that it appears to have gone down? If a multinational supply chain auditor requires SA 8000 compliance, why not run two factories, one model site for the international auditors to check and one without labour controls to supply the mass market? What the age of management does, therefore, is at best to stifle creativity and at worst to foster perverse creativity, causing companies to regress into the age of marketing. This was somewhat evident in a 2010 McKinsey survey which showed that while more than 50% of executives considered sustainability very or extremely important in a wide range of areas, including new product development, reputation building and overall corporate strategy, only 30% said their companies actively seek opportunities to invest in sustainability or embed it in their business practices. Not that the corporate sustainability and responsibility area lacks the potential for innovation. Back in 1997, leading academic Stuart Hart was already saying that greening has been framed in terms of risk reduction, re-engineering or cost-cutting, and rarely has greening been linked to strategy or technology development, and as a result, most companies fail to recognize opportunities of potentially staggering proportions. More than 10 years later, these sentiments were echoed in the Harvard Business Review, which observed that companies won't innovate successfully and as a result won't grow unless they throw themselves whole hog into green initiatives. The authors concluded that smart companies now treat sustainability as innovation's new frontier. Similarly, Jeffrey Hollander and Bill Green declare in their book The Responsibility Revolution that green marketing campaigns just don't cut it anymore. Insurgent good companies focus on innovation rather than reputation. When creativity is a bad thing. Of course, there has never been a shortage of creativity in business. In fact, one of the strongest drivers of creativity today is the market. However, the market has by and large only tracked and rewarded economic measures of progress. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that a great deal of the creativity in business has gone towards making more money, not towards minimizing the negative impacts of business on society. The derivatives boom since the 1980s is a classic case in point. This has been creativity on a grand scale, by the so-called smartest guys in the room, but with the sole objective of making unprecedented amounts of money from speculation. The result is that, in extreme cases like Enron and Lehman Brothers, innovation literally manifests as creative accounting. The lessons from these cases, and more generally from the age of greed, is that it is not just financial incentives, but also the cultural context that drives our behaviour. Sometimes that culture is about pure, unbridled greed, but more often it is an insidious culture of materialism and consumerism. Chilean barefoot economist Manfred Max Neef believes this prevailing culture is due to a fundamental misunderstanding, or perhaps misdirection, of how we satisfy our fundamental human needs. The belief that buying a product can give us more status or acceptance, or intimacy, for example, is simply a misnomer. Max Neef calls these pseudo-satisfiers. They will never make us truly content or happy. But that hasn't stopped us trying, 
Since 1980, the global economy has tripled in size and is expected to expand by a factor of five in the next 50 years. World energy consumption rose from 207 quadrillion BTUs in 1970 to 375 in 1996, and is projected to reach 612 in 2020. Average annual anthropogenic carbon emissions. Which were less than two billion tons between 1850 and 1950, rocketed to 7.1 billion tons during the 1980s, and will soar further to an expected 9.8 billion tons by 2020. Speaking to me in 2008, Hunter Lovins observed that we are using resources so inefficiently that our economy digs up. Puts through various resource crunching activities and then throws away half a trillion tons of stuff a year. Out of all of this stuff, less than one percent of it ever gets into a product and is still there six months after sale. All the rest is waste. And what, more than anything else, is pushing our consumerist lifestyle? In a word, advertising. The four hundred and fifty billion dollar advertising industry. Which is surely the very epitome of business creativity, has a very dubious ethical foundation. How often are advertisements about providing useful product information, and how often are they about manipulating the psyche of prospective consumers? Advertising today is all about associating a brand with an emotion, usually triggered by images of aspirational lifestyles or popularity, irrespective of their relevance to the product. Pseudo satisfiers, Max Neef reminded me in 2008, have justified the emergence and development of one of the most colossal industries that have ever existed, which is advertising. The purpose of advertising is to generate pseudo satisfiers. And so, while the age of management acts in many ways as the antidote to creativity, the age of marketing acts as the disease of mellifluous creativity. BP's Beyond Petroleum campaign was creative, but towards what end? Lehman Brothers' Ninja mortgages were creative, but for whose benefit? Creativity is necessary for ushering in the age of responsibility, but like technology, it depends how that creativity is directed. Creative destruction. One of the most popular theories on innovation is creative destruction. The concept is most associated with Joseph Schumpeter, following his 1942 book *Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy*, in which he described creative destruction as the process of industrial mutation that incessantly revolutionizes the economic structure from within, incessantly destroying the old one, incessantly creating a new one. The process must be seen in its role in the perennial gale of creative destruction. It cannot be understood on the hypothesis that there is a perennial lull. The idea, of course, is much older. In Hinduism, the goddess Shiva is simultaneously the creator and destroyer of worlds. In modern times, the German sociologist Werner Sombart described the process in 1913, saying. From destruction, a new spirit of creation arises. The scarcity of wood and the needs of everyday life forced the discovery or invention of substitutes for wood, forced the use of coal for heating, forced the invention of coke for the production of iron. 
Even Marx and Engels had an attempt at describing the process in their Communist Manifesto, stating that constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All that is solid melts into air. The idea of melting solids is a very similar one to the metaphor used by sustainability and social enterprise thought leader John Elkington to explain the disruptive changes going on in the world. When I interviewed him in 2008, he said, What happens in an earthquake? The land becomes thixotropic. What was solid suddenly becomes almost semi-liquid. I think we are headed towards a period where the global economy goes into a sort of thixotropic state. Key parts of our economies and societies are on a doomed path, really, and I think that's unavoidable. I think we're heading into a period of creative destruction on a scale that we really haven't seen in a very long time. And there are all sorts of factors that feed into it. The entry of the Chinese and Indians into the global market, quite apart from things like climate change and new technology. All of these pressures are going to mobilize a set of dynamics which are unpredictable and profoundly disruptive to incumbent companies, so some companies will disappear. As to what this means for business, Elkington believes that most companies that we currently know will not be around in 15 to 20 years which is almost an inconceivable statement, but periodically this happens and there's a radical bleeding of the landscape. We'll find this sort of reassembly going on. Over a period of time, we're going to have some fairly different products, some different technologies and business models coming back into the West, and I think it's going to be quite exciting, but very disruptive. We see all kinds of examples of creative destruction in corporate sustainability and responsibility. For virtually the whole of the 20th century, the biggest companies in the world were the oil and gas and motor giants, companies like Exxon, BP, General Motors and Toyota. But the 21st century, with growing concerns over energy security and climate change on the one hand, and the rising geopolitical and economic power of the East on the other hand, are ushering in a new era. Already in 2006, the richest man in China was reported to be the CEO of the solar company SunTech, and the richest woman made her fortune from recycling. By 2005, it was the founder of BYD, which manufactures batteries in electric cars. A 2010 report published by the Pew Environmental Center found that in 2009, China invested more than $34 billion in clean energy economies, while the U.S. invested only $18 billion. In June 2010, China also launched its own clean tech index. The U.S. is fighting back. Venture capital investment in renewable energy, electric cars, energy efficiency and other green technology jumped to $1.5 billion in the U.S. in the second quarter of 2010, a near 64% spike over the same period in 2009. Green tech investment in the U.S. has now returned to the record levels of the third quarter of 2008 before the economic collapse. This explosive growth was brought home to me when at an event of the Women in Sustainability Action Group in Shanghai, 
I got to talk to a supplier of wind turbines to Europe. Simply put, he cannot keep up with the demand. He is turning customers away because there is already a 12-month lead time on orders in the pipeline. Even Germany, an early leader in the clean technology space, can no longer compete with China in this sunrise industry. It is no coincidence that while Obama's energy reform bill was scuppered by the US Congress, Malaysia created an energy, green technology and water ministry. And while the British company BP was virtually on its knees in May 2010, the Korean company Samsung unveiled an eye-watering investment plan to future-proof the company by sinking $21 billion into its green technology and healthcare businesses. It claimed that the investment would generate $44 billion in annual sales and 45,000 new jobs by 2020.